0: So just to be clear, we, we, this is, uh, it's an audio podcast, so we appreciate you getting dressed up, Alan, for it. But...
1: And, and I did run and put on this shirt because I saw the comment that there was a video. Otherwise, you would have had the t-shirt.
0: <laughs> That's okay. You look great. Hello and welcome to Make It, Move It, Sell It. On this podcast, I talk with company leaders about how they're modernizing the business of making, moving, and selling products. And, of course, having fun along the way. I'm your host, Adam Honig, the CEO of Spiro.ai. We make amazing AI software for companies in the supply chain, but we're not talking about that today. Instead, today, we're talking to Alan Baer, the president of OLUSA, a full-service logistics provider for air, ocean, and domestic. Welcome to the podcast, Alan. Nice to be here. Thank you very much. For sure. Now tell us a little bit about OL, what you guys are all about, and the story behind it.
1: OL was uh, born out of a a group of industrial, or industrious, I should say, logistics people. Uh, We came together uh, starting back in 2012, and really we only had a couple offices back then. we, We were an intrepid group of five. And over the last decade, so to speak, we've grown from those five to having, at one point was 15 offices before COVID, and then we became 200 offices when we all moved home and were working from home. And we've somewhat stayed in that structure. Along the way, we added some operations in Dubai, in the UK, and also out in the Philippines. Today, uh, we are a fairly balanced company. We do uh, about half our business is outbound um, out of the United States, and the other half is inbound. Um, and then on top of that, we do business in and out of uh, U.K., uh, in and out of Dubai, and, and also with our operation in the Philippines.
0: Gotcha. And who's, who's a typical customer, would you say, Alan? We do business with a lot of middle-tier organizations, whether it's other
1: logistics providers who take advantage of our global scale and scope. So we have a lot of customers there what we term our beneficial cargo owners come to us and and both again on the import and export side because we provide as i like to say creative solutions uh, that help uh, their individual needs and their individual supply chain and so we have exporters who been along for the 10-year ride so to speak who were in europe originally And now they're in South America, Australia, Asia, and Europe, and we give them the capability to come to their contacts within OL, and we can price business all over the world and arrange transportation. The other thing we have is uh, a lot of solid partners around the world. Uh, We have 150 to 180 agents we're dealing with all the time. Um, And that's where we came up with sort of the tagline of local around the world. We're here in those four core centers, but we have local knowledge and expertise all over the world. Um, Thus, local around the world.
0: So it seems like it used to be like a much simpler world, right? You manufactured something, maybe it was in Asia, maybe it was in Mexico, and you shipped it to the US or maybe one location. Today it's all multimodal, right? Everything's going everywhere all at the same time. Yes,
1: yes. To your point, if you go back five or 10 years, China as the factory of the world was a dominant position almost for the last 20 years. And then starting in 2016, 2017, as some of the tariffs were introduced, businesses were forced, some in survival mode and others simply for cost containment and competitive reasons to find new sources of supply. So we've seen over the last six, seven years, supply migrate into Vietnam, into Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, even countries like Cambodia have been coming on. You've seen companies uh, um, right up, and in, including Apple, who have taken supply out of China and moved it to India, for example. I think we'll continue to see that. And then there's the nearshoring phenomenon where there will be increased business in Mexico. And then we're seeing countries like Colombia, Panama, Ecuador, Peru, where companies are looking and saying, oh, wow, I'm five, seven, nine days of transit time. It's a geopolitical chess game as well as a supply chain game.
0: Right. Now, when they're moving from China, like it's not like they're picking up their whole operation from China, though. They're just kind of diversifying. Is that what you're saying? Or are you seeing people move out wholesale?
1: You have a little bit of both. So there are some companies where if you can't get everything from, well, let's imagine you were buying 100% from China and the tariff came in. Well, there may be some parts you can still get in China that are non-tariff. But the tariff pieces, you moved to Thailand. There were other companies, though, who literally picked up their whole factory, loaded it on 100 trucks, immediately went south of the border into Vietnam, and within a couple of weeks, they were open in Ho Chi Minh. And you really saw that trend continue to the point where the ocean carriers who were dominant in the transportation of the cargo started to put larger and larger vessels into Vietnam and it used to be Vietnam was a feeder port, whether it was via Taiwan, Singapore, wherever. Now the mothership, so to speak, will call directly in Vietnam because of the volume of cargo that over the last six, seven years has been generated by factory migration, so to speak.
0: Now, I want to talk about these tariffs for a second. Um, you know, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but the tariffs to the casual observer, 10% tariff doesn't seem like such a big deal, but it's obviously big enough to make pretty dramatic action happen for these manufacturers.
1: Why do you think that is? Tariffs have raised anywhere from ten to twenty-five percent. And so if you start with a container of fifty thousand dollars and you had a fifteen thousand margin, which would be a decent margin, fifteen over fifty, it's a nice profit margin. But now ten percent of that disappears, you you now pay fifty five thousand because of the tariff, fifty to the vendor in China, five to the US government. Your actual margin was cut down by 33%. And now, if you look at that same equation, but your tariff is 25%, well, now out of 15,000 of margin, 12,500, because it's 25% on 50, goes away. Now you're down to only 2,500 of profit. And that's not enough to pay your staff or your overhead or your borrowing costs to borrow the $50,000. And so you're literally, in some cases, out of business if you don't move that source from China to a non-tariff location.
0: Gross profit was down, but the net profit just could disappear entirely.
1: Correct. You might have the same equation of I buy it for 50, I sell it for 65, but I'm no longer really buying it for 50 because now I've got to add on top the tariff itself. So my actual landed cost
0: including transportation, has just blown me out of the water. Right. Now, I know, um, you know, at least I perceive that part of the desire for the tariff was to bring more manufacturing to the U.S. Do you feel like that's been a result of these tariffs?
1: Honestly, I don't think so at the moment. We haven't seen that enough yet. I mean, there's some recent activity um, like the CHIPS Act and things like that where we're trying to near shore. But that, I think, is more, again, geopolitical in nature, It's also based on the defense industry having access to chips and the worry over things like China, Taiwan, US, Taiwan. But if you're bringing in lighting fixtures or some really baseline products that may go into a house or something, we're not equipped in the US to suddenly start making those things on the scale that we've been buying it out of China and at the same price. And so there's a lot of people who sort of make light of it, but if we were to produce some of that stuff all here and the price of a $300,000 house or a 400000 entry house was suddenly up by fifty or or $100,000 because it was all made here, how many people are you forcing out of the market? Does that ultimately depress the housing market? There's all sorts of equations you can do with that, but I have a a very close friend who was literally put out of business overnight because they were bringing in reading lights that kids would clip on their books, and it had a timer attached to it. So um, at night when they'd get into bed, they had to read for 10 minutes, and the light had a timer on it, and then it would turn off, and they knew it wouldn't go to sleep. And literally overnight, he couldn't supply Target and Walmart anymore because suddenly it was a 25% tariff. And he didn't even have 25 percent margin when you're selling into some of the big box guys and had
0: to reinvent his whole business because the lighting business was done. Wow. Wow. So these tariffs have caused a lot to go to places like Vietnam. How do those ports and countries and everything deal with all this new demand? It must be really challenging for them then.
1: Absolutely. And we've seen that initially when the ports weren't ready, in a sense, for it. For example, to the point about how deep is the water, how deep is the the port itself over the last seven, eight ten years now we've seen increased activity where some of the major port development companies have built new facilities all over Vietnam up and down the coast and the the same in Thailand, same in Malaysia, Indonesia is also doing it at one point it was concentrated in and around Jakarta. now you're seeing it spread out across. The islands of Indonesia as manufacturing is there. Some of the printer companies are, are are there. I think even now Tesla may be moving some part manufacturing to Indonesia as oh, well. Really? The other Southeast Asian countries have been the beneficiary of the tariffs, so to speak, because there's a lot of business that has migrated and is helping them and their GDP. It's why you see Thailand in the top 10 of growth now. Vietnam, same thing. They're even growing faster to agree now than the Chinese
0: are. Well it's gotta be make things very challenging for anybody who's involved in the logistics business. I mean, not only do you have all of the supply chain disruptions of COVID and everything that's related to that, but then you've got all this geopolitical change at the same time. Absolutely. And I
1: think the the thing that you're faced with is now how to forecast it. And so you have to get on a plane. And if the hierarchy in a business is, hey, we can't just rely on that supplier in Shanghai. you got to find one in India, one in Thailand, and another in Vietnam. Your sourcing people or are on flights and going around knocking on doors. Can you build this mold? Can you make this part? Can you hit this spec? And a lot of trial and error. But that's why over the last few years you've seen the volume from those countries increase Um, Even our exports from the U.S. to those countries has increased as their trade flow increases. There are more dollars showing up there. They're, in turn, buying uh, more machinery from the U.S., even down to bulldozers, tractors, graders. There happens to be a big used market for used construction equipment coming out of the U.S., moving into places like Vietnam to improve roads and site development for factories and things like that. So there's this, a recyclement, if you will, I don't even know if that's a word, Of construction equipment works for me. That that gets sent out.
0: That's really interesting, Alan, because we had a recent podcast guest who actually moved himself and his headquarters of his business to Jakarta just so he could be closer to suppliers. Just being able to be physically in touch with them so important, you know?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think there are two pieces to that. One is quality control that um, you want to be right on site to make sure that the product that are churning out and you're putting in containers and shipping all over the world meet the spec that they have to, whether it's going to the EU or the U.S. And the other is driven, as we've been talking about, through geopolitical means where companies had their headquarters in China or they had like a regional office there or Hong Kong, and those are increasingly being relocated to Singapore. It's just a less cantankerous environment that they're located in. It's a beautiful place, actually, to say, oh, I live in Singapore. Not a bad gig.
0: Yeah, no, I've been to Singapore. It's super nice there, actually, except when it gets super humid as well. But, you know, can't have everything. Hey, I want to talk for a minute about... Canals, Because, you know, I, this has been on my mind. As somebody who's involved in a lot of shipping, I was reading about the Suez Canal, that they're widening it, making it deeper. What What is going on with all of that?
1: So there, this is an, a, a reaction to the larger and larger vessels that the carriers have been building. You're now in the 23,000 to 25,000 TEU size. And as a result, when they're fully loaded, the draft of the vessel it has been getting deeper and deeper. And therefore, the canal authorities are are widening and, for sure, deepening them where they can to avoid some of the issues that uh, we experienced with the Evergreen vessel when she ran aground.
0: So is that what happened? They had, It was too uh, narrow or, or not deep enough for that vessel?
1: Not so much in that case because she got sideways in the canal, and instead of going sort of the long way, she was... Start
0: trying to float. I mean, that happens to me when I get in a canal. I go sideways right away. And so as a
1: result, she ran aground and unfortunately at a speed that she buried the bow of the ship in the sand and silt that was on the bottom. And it took them a while to refloat her and, and pull her out. But we see the same thing on the Panama Canal now where even though they've added an extra lock for bigger ships, the lake in between the two sides of the canal is too shallow. So they're restricting the tonnage of the vessels coming through the canal there. And so, again, they can't dig the lake any deeper. We just need more rain in Panama at the moment to deepen the water for the bigger ships to get
0: through. What about the changing temperatures of the ocean? I've been reading a lot about that recently. That Does that impact logistics at all, the ocean currents or moving around differently
1: i don't know so much the ocean current per se but it's more just the weather anomalies so i mean the ships are out in the middle of the ocean and they've got to dance around storms as best they can and when you see the pictures that people love to circulate of the containers rocking back and forth and if finally a hundred of them can go over the side and so, as weather challenges increase, you could have more of that. Same thing, just looking at U.S. supply chains. If there are worse storms, whether it's rainstorms for flooding, the tornadoes that we're experiencing these past few weeks, um, in the winter blizzards, uh, just literally shut down rail lines, truck lines, the weather plays into supply chain nonstop. We've seen times where airports are shut down because it's too hot and the runways aren't capable of
0: handling it. Uh, we've seen highways play into that as well. So. Or we had that big collapse on I-95 in Philadelphia recently. Exactly. So is there like a weather person on staff at your company, or are you guys just monitoring like the services as you see them? We're big fans of Lonnie Quinn on CBS tv here in New York. Okay, yes, I can understand why. Well, let's talk for a minute about OL. I mean, one of the things that I know about your business is that, you know, you guys take a little bit more of a creative approach to the problem. Can can you maybe just talk a little bit more about that? Yeah,
1: I, I mean, I think one of the things we focus on when we talk about it each week with all of the teams, and because we're now sitting sort of in this 200 at your home table or desk, we do a lot of Zoom calls, and as a result... We try to reinforce that don't take a cookie-cutter approach just because you had a solution for customer A. It doesn't mean it'll work for B and C. And you really have to noodle through with each one, make sure we're asking the right questions, what's important to customers. Some people will really accept the proverbial slow boat from China because it's at a lower price. Other people need it to get here in nine or ten days and are paying that to avoid air freight. You have to Understand the drivers of companies' business, the values of their product, and then make sure that in conjunction with a lot of back and forth with the customer themselves, you do use your creative juices to find the right solution. And it allows then the customer, if you will, to maximize their spend, which in the end goes into their profit margin and the price they need to charge the American consumer or on our exports, the local consumer at the destination. It's all about building a competitive mousetrap, so to speak.
0: Yeah. Is there is there anything kind of like any project that you guys were involved with that was sort of really creative or unusual that comes to mind?
1: Interestingly enough, we do move movie equipment around the world. We had some stuff that uh, went to New Zealand, and then recently we moved some automobiles for a particular movie that went into Eastern Europe. And now we're in the process of bringing some of that stuff back. Um, those are fun things. Uh, we once moved a Ferris wheel that was uh, in an amusement park in Europe and had to come back to Florida for refurbishing. So in conjunction with our partners over there, we moved that, which was just interesting to see the picture of it assembled, then disassembled inside open top and containers. Then, again in Florida, and then back out again, and then reassembled. So those are interesting moments that are a little bit different than just the standard 20 or 40 of foodstuffs going back and forth, although food is vital everywhere we move it. So uh, that helps as well.
0: Yeah, it would have been crazy if they wanted to keep the Ferris wheel together on the ship so that they could ride it while they were coming across the Atlantic or something like that. I mean, you wouldn't recommend it, but it would have been fun.
1: Right, it would have been an interesting one. But wait, something that does move like that are the gantry cranes that you see in all the ports and all the harbors, the big sort of monster things. They move set up on the flat part of a ship. They're just standing there like giant transformers, almost like you're picturing these transformers up on the vessel. And, and they move intact.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Now, Alan, I know from our previous conversations, you're very into the AI thing. What's your view on where that's going to have a big impact in your industry?
1: I think ultimately there'll be a convergence of the ability to ask the computer for services, including schedules, pricing, over a long run, much like you go to a website to do travel bookings of any kind. Over time, that will hit our industry. Um, We're already weaving into our visibility platform the language model so that instead of receiving a report or an Excel sheet, you'll hear, if you want, the the video version of it, uh, or like you'll have it programmed to speak to you, if you will, or you'll have the text version, and it'll just say, Good morning, Adam. Here's the story of your cargo today you've got 10 containers on the water, they're all in line with the projected dates, or this one is on a customs hold, and that will allow you, instead of scouring an Excel sheet, you'll just know your story. And uh, you can get that daily, you can get it weekly, you can get it twice a day, whatever cadence you want to invent. And I think that will go deeper and deeper into it. And as Other organizations embed AI into their programs, whether it's an app or just their day-to-day truck software or anything like that, even the CRM software, it'll all converge in the background. We're using it on the CRM side to create stories about why customers should use us and to do marketing through using an AI tool, uh, merging government statistical data with an AI tool to drive canvassing for freight. I think all of those things are coming uh, at an increasing velocity at the moment.
0: Yeah, no, it's a really exciting time. I mean, I, I've recently been listening to the Spotify AI DJ, and it kind of reminds me a little bit about what you're talking about, that you can just get what you need, when you need it, somebody talking to you, maybe you're in your car, you, know, you don't have to be like reading a document or something like that. I think that's pretty exciting stuff. For sure.
1: I mean, not to plug whether it's Alexa or Siri or anything like that, but I I am imagining that over the next 12 to 18 months, you'll be able to say to an OL app, hey, OL, tell me about my cargo, and it'll know that it's you because in the background the app will know that it's Adam logging in and asking that question, or do I have any containers that are late today? And it'll give you a feedback on that, or did that hot load sail out of Shanghai? And that interactiveness will will just occur in the background as we move forward over, like I say, over the next 12 to 18 months. I really see that coming alive.
0: Yeah, no, it's definitely, it's de- we're just on the cusp of some really interesting things. I totally agree. Well, listen, Alan, I really, really appreciate your coming on the program today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It's good always to see you. So as a reminder to our listeners, you can find every episode of the Make It, Move It, Sell It podcast at Spiro.ai backslash podcast. And uh, I don't know, Alan, do you think listeners should maybe give us a good rating or a like or... Absolutely. Hopefully, in in
1: the words of Uber, I want a
0: five-star rating. <laughs> really appreciate that. Well, listen to everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we're looking forward to the next episode.